You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Chapter 4, God speaks to His people. Uh, We're going to look, God's going to speak to the people, and then God is going to speak to the priests. And I want you to get a flavor. We're going to go fast through this. This is just a a review of what we looked at. But look at chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. This is to all the people. For the Lord brings charges against the inhabitants of the land. And here's the charge. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. That's the, that's the indictment. If you overlaid that on America, what would you say? There is no truth. There is no mercy. There is no knowledge of God. Walking in God's ways is not difficult. He wants us to know him. And when we have a knowledge of him, we will walk in truth and we will be merciful. This is what God wants in his people. But when we do not walk with him, then the land is void of these things. It's void of truth, void of mercy, and there's no knowledge of God. And what does that produce? It produces verse 2. It produces swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, and breaking all restraint. Bloodshed upon bloodshed. How many of you want to live in that land? This is what happens when we walk away from the knowledge of God. This is what happens when we walk away from the truth of God's word. This is the the bad fruit that comes from not having knowledge of God and walking in the truth of God. You get swearing and lying. You get killing and stealing. You get committing adultery. You get breaking all restraint. And you get bloodshed upon bloodshed. I look at the world today and I think, oh my gosh, how did we get here? Over a million abortions a year, how does that happen in the United States? How does that happen? The looting of stores, the lawlessness in the streets, the the degrading of society. Uh, I'm not trying to be a downer, but I think uh, we've all seen how, how has society gone in the last 20 years? We would long to get back to where we once were, would we not? Well, it happened because there is no truth, no mercy or knowledge of God. And the way back is to bring truth and mercy and knowledge of God back into our lives. And God is warning him. He says this in verse 3, the land will mourn or the land will suffer and everyone who dwells there will waste away. Is that happening? Wow. Well, here we see the parallels then of of what we need to do. Uh, God spoke to the people. Jump down to verse 6. God is now going to speak to the priests, to the religious leaders. Uh, By the way, God, uh, Jesus, when when God became a man and walked on the earth, Jesus had great compassion on sinners. He had great compassion on prostitutes. He had great compassion on those stuck in sin. But he was harsh. He was strong against false religious leaders who portrayed him in the wrong light. 
And uh, it is a dangerous thing to be a pastor. The Bible says, let not many of you be teachers, for theirs is a stricter judgment, both by God and by man. And we clearly see that when Jesus was on the earth. And so, Lord, have mercy on my soul. Help me to teach your word well. <laughs> Verse 6, God speaking to the priest, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected God, because you have rejected knowledge, because you have rejected God's word, I will also reject you from being priests for me because you have forgotten the law of God. I will also forget your children. Wow. That is harsh, man. Tough passage this morning. Uh, uh, difficult things. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. And priest, this is your fault, is what God is saying. The teaching in the church is so watered down that my people have no knowledge. You priest, you think you're giving these little entertaining sermonettes and you give a little inspirational message every Sunday and what's happening is my people do not know my word. My people have no knowledge. And because they don't know my word, because they have no knowledge, they are easily deceived and they are being deceived and sold wholesale and then their lives are being destroyed. And he tells the priests, you have rejected knowledge, you've rejected God's word, and I'm going to reject you from being priests because you have forgotten the law of God. God speaks to the people and he says, there's no mercy, there's no truth, there's no knowledge of God in you. God speaks to the priest and he says, you've rejected my word. The nation is a mess. Uh, jump down to chapter 5. Go to verse 8. We studied chapter 5 last week. We're going to pick up in verse 8 to get the context of chapter 6. And here God says, blow the alarms, man. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah. Uh, this next passage, he's going to tell us, sound the alarms. You hear those, those, those war sirens? Are they not horrifying? Well, that's what God is saying to the nation. He's saying, sound the alarms. Look what he says, verse 8. Judgment is coming. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah. Blow the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud in Beth-Avon. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Uh, let's dissect this a little bit. Let me unpack that a little bit. Let me explain what this means. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah. Gibeah was a little town. I have a picture for, uh, for you here. Uh, there's Jerusalem, the red star. And here's the three stars that uh, God just named here. All of them are within about 10 miles of each other. They're all very close together. Uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, is down here in the darker color. Uh, the lighter color is the northern kingdom, Israel. There were 10 tribes to the north, two tribes to the south, Judah and Benjamin. Uh, and Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. You can see, he says, blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, where there you can see where Gibeah is. It's just right next to Jerusalem. And God says, blow the ram's horn there. Sound the alarms. And then he says, uh, blow the trumpet in Ramah. Ramah is right above it. And then he says, cry aloud and in what town? Read your verse, verse 8. Cry aloud where? Beth-Avon. Beth -Avon. Well, there's no place called Beth-Avon. 
Beth Haven's not a real place. Uh, it is sarcasm being used by God to show how wicked the people have become. The place was called Bethel. Beth in Hebrew means house. El means God. Bethel means what? House of God. Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, uh, so, little Hebrew lesson this morning, no charge. Uh, <laughs> he changes it from Bethel to Beth Avon. Avon means iniquity or wickedness. What used to be the house of God is now what? The house of wickedness because the pastors aren't doing their job. And they're giving little inspirational talks and they're ignoring what? The Bible. And instead of speaking truth, they speak flattering, comforting, tender words that do nothing but just make you feel good for 15 seconds. And as soon as you hit the parking lot, you're left with nothing. Cotton candy in your mouth, gone and not healthy. And so he says, sound the alarm in Gibeah, sound the alarm in Ramah. In other words, pay attention, southern kingdom, and sound the alarm in Beth-Avon that used to be Bethel, it used to be the house of God, and now it's the house of iniquity. All of these, by the way, you see that little road going up there? All of those were on a main corridor, towns right in a row. It'd be like picking three towns right here on I-5, right? Like... Uh, that's what God is doing here. Uh, and you can see this road goes all the way up to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it departs there where you can go in uh, around Samaria. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, God's sounding the alarm. And look what he says. Uh, the, the last part of verse 8. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Who's Benjamin? Benjamin is the southern kingdom. And he's saying, look behind you, O Benjamin. Uh, take a look at what's going on there in the northern kingdom, how they're getting wiped out, and you better pay attention, southern kingdom. Why? Because if you don't learn, it's going to happen to you. Pay, pay attention and learn. Uh, as we study our Bibles, it's so that we might pay attention and learn. As we read about what happened in Israel at 700 B.C. in the book of Hosea, what is the point? So that we might pay attention and learn so that what? So that we don't follow these same things. The Bible says uh, these things were written for our learning, right? Uh, and so we want to be wise. And he tells them, hey, southern kingdom, pay attention. Verse 9, Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. What is God saying there? Northern kingdom, if you don't repent, you're going to be carried away captive. You're going to be desolate. You're going to be empty. You're going to be bankrupt. And look what he says. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. The prophets have always spoke to the nation Israel, and God has always foretold what he is going to do in the nation Israel. God is saying, listen, I've been giving you warnings. I am foretelling, and I want you to know what I make known is sure. It is certain. You can bank on it. You can put all your portfolio on it. It's going to happen. Uh, you might want to take it to heart. The princes of Judah, uh, 
are like those who remove a landmark. And you say, what does that mean? Uh, who are the princes of Judah? Judah is the southern kingdom on the map. Who are the princes of Judah? What does that mean? Let me hear from you. Leaders, leaders. What kind of leaders? The king, the governors, the priests, the, the uh uh, you know, all, all the leaders of the land. That's what he's talking about when he says princes. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. What is that? Uh, well, a landmark, uh, um, imagine if you're uh, in your backyard one day and you're mowing the lawn and you go, you know, I'd like a little more room back here. I could put a jacuzzi back here if I had a little more room. And so you, while you're mowing the lawn, you look over your right and left shoulder and you move the fence post over five feet. <laughs> hey, got a little more room. And next week you're mowing the lawn. If I can just get another five feet, man, I got that jacuzzi. So you move the landmark over another five feet. And he's saying the princes of Judah are like those who move a landmark. What's he saying? They're deceitful. They're deceptive. And they're out for their own gain. I want you to know if you have any position of authority, any position of leadership, and everyone does, you have some level of leadership in your life. And I want you to know God has given you that level of leadership, not for your own glory, not for your own power, but to build, edify, and protect others. Whatever authority you have, it's to take care of those who don't have authority. Whatever power you have, it's to take care of those who don't have power. And yet in our sin, guess what we want to do with our position? We want to elevate it and we want to build ourselves. And he says the princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. They're selfish and deceitful. They're lying and they're cheating all for personal gain. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. God's stern warning. Hey, you better pay attention. Don't think that I don't see. Uh, look what he says, verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment. Uh, what does that mean? I want you to think. Uh, I don't mind if there's silence even for a moment, but I want you to think. I want you to digest this. We're here to meditate on God's word. What does he mean when he says Ephraim? Ephraim is the northern kingdom. They're oppressed and broken in judgment. Oppressed, we understand. Uh, they're not thriving. Uh, they're declining. They're uh, not joyful. They're oppressed. What does it mean when it says they're broken in judgment? What does that mean? Poor leadership. Not thinking right. That was a great answer. Poor leadership. What else? Making bad decisions. Uh, when he says that they're broken in judgment, he means that they have no discernment. They couldn't pass a right law if their life depended on it. Uh, did you ever see the Seinfeld where George decides to do the opposite? It's, he, he, he becomes opposite George, and his life goes better. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? 
Sometimes I think that's what we need in government right now. We need opposite George in there. We can't make a right decision to save our life, right? Uh, and he says, this is what's happening with the princes of, of Israel. Uh, they're broken in judgment. They have no discernment. And why? Look at this. Because he willingly walked by human precept. They lost all discernment because they departed from God's word and they did what was right in their own eyes. And when a nation says we no longer need God's word, we know what's best, you will be broken in judgment. Or in other words, you will lack discernment. Or in other words, you will make a lot of really bad decisions. In the very beginning of time, in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve the entire world. And he said, you can do anything that you want. You can go to Maui and make love. You can eat any tree in the entire world. You can travel. You can do anything. The earth is yours. Rule over it. Have dominion. Enjoy. It's a sinless, perfect environment. Enjoy it, man. I made it for you. The only thing I don't want you to do is to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you say, that's a crazy name for the prohibition, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Let me paraphrase and cut right to the chase. Here's what God is telling Adam and Eve. Do not decide for yourself. Do not partake the knowledge of what is good and what is evil. You let me decide what is good and evil. The moment that you decide what is good and evil, you are toast. You will die. And so guess what the enemy wants us to do? Decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And we do that all over the place. And it brings death. God said the day that you decide what is good and evil for yourself, the day that you take on the knowledge of what is good and evil... You will depart from me. You will sin and you will, you will pay a price for it. It won't go well for you. And notice what he says here. It's the exact same thing. Nothing is different. He says the princes of Judah, oh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment. They have no discernment. Why? Because he willingly walked by human precept or decided for himself what was good and what is evil. Now here's the results of this. Take note, verse 12. Therefore, I, God, will be to Ephraim, the northern kingdom, like a moth. And I will be to the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, like rottenness. What is he saying? Like a moth and like rottenness. He says, because they willingly refuse my word, they're going to have decay and destruction. Let me ask you, does a moth destroy something all at once or gradually over time? In my house, my house is now 30 years old and I'm looking at the eaves and I got to get the, the paper redone on my, on my roof before winter because I don't want to have a leak. And so I'm starting to look at all this right now. And, and I went out and I started poking around my eaves and you know what I found on my eaves? They're all rotted. They're all rotted. And it's got to be dealt with, man. It's a, I don't know when it happened. It was a slow decay. 
And here's what he's saying. Because you don't walk in my ways, the nation Israel, the nation is being destroyed in a slow decay like like rotted wood or like a moth just slowly eating and ruining the thing. Wow. Radical. You know what we learn from all this? What do we see? Well, we see what God is trying to tell his people. That vain religion rots the soul. Vain religion rots the soul like moths, like rottenness. It just ruins the whole foundation. And Israel had been in vain religion. What does vain religion mean? What do I mean by that? Did they believe in God? Yes. But they had golden calves. They were worshiping the God of power. They were worshiping sex. They were worshiping money. They were worshiping all the things of the flesh. And they were still going to church like nothing. Their heart wasn't set on God. They weren't reading God's word. It didn't cut them to their core and go, oh my gosh, I'm doing that. Lord, forgive me. That wasn't happening. They would just come in, they would have their religious service, and they would go out. Church, I want you to know, church is a very dangerous place to be. If you come here so that you can feel good about yourself, you have missed the point. Church is the place where we come before a Savior who died on the cross to pay the punishment of our sins so that we can be reminded of his infinite love for us. Church is the place where a harlot bride can come before her creator and say, oh, I am sorry. I have cheated on you once again. I want to be right with you. I was deceived. I went away. My flesh, Lord, save me. Church is a place where we open his word and we say, oh my gosh, I'm doing this and I'm doing this. Lord, have mercy on my soul. I see the path. Your way is way better. Thank you for showing me. I remember the first time I read the Bible as a new believer, I read the book of Ecclesiastes. I opened it up like, oh my goodness, there is so much wisdom here. This is the wisdom I never had. Lord, thank you. This is amazing. I want to walk in this path. That's what church is. That's what church is. Vain religion is coming in with no mind of what you of your sin against God. No gratitude for what God has done for you. No desire to actually change in any way, shape, or form or to have his word uh, guide and direct you and, and, and change the course of your life. No, no, no. I just go because, you know, I, you're supposed to. I want to go to heaven one day. Can I ask you a question? Why in the world would you want to go to heaven? If you don't want to walk with God now, why in the world would you want to be with him for eternity? God is not going to force people to be in heaven with him. Heaven is for those who realize he's amazing and say, oh man, I've never been loved like that. I want to be with you. I want to know you. 
Heaven is for those who would learn that in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Heaven is for those who say, Lord, I tried sin. It didn't work. It left me broken and empty and had horrible relationships and I've walked in your ways and it has built an amazing family, an amazing life, just a life and life abundant. Lord, your ways are so good. Where else can I go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. That is what church is. And vain religion is just going through the motions. When you're aware of your sin, do you know what happens when you go to church? You come and you hear about Jesus' work on the cross and you sing. And you sing loud. And you sing in with all of your heart because you are that sinner. You see the lame man who couldn't walk on his own and Jesus healing him and you go, oh my gosh, that's me. And he has given me the ability to walk on a path I could never walk on before. Lord, thank you for healing me. And you worship and you praise and you open your Bible and you take notes and, and uh, uh, that is church, man. We're worshiping Jesus. We're worshiping Jesus because we're in awe of him. The vain religion is just going through the motions while we live in sin and not changing at all. And you know what it does to us? It rots us to the core. It rots us to the soul. And you say, how? Well, it sears your conscience. You think you're right with God when you're not. I want you to think of these words that Jesus said. He said, if the light that is in you is darkness... It's the greatest of darkness. And you say, what the heck does that mean? If you think you have God in life, in your life, light, light represents God, darkness represents evil. If the light that is in you is darkness, it's the greatest darkness. If you think you have God in your life and you don't, it's fake, it's the greatest darkness you could ever be in. I'd far rather be on skid row knowing I'm a sinner than sitting in a church thinking I'm in a good spot when I don't even know God. And vain religion will rot the soul. It will sear your conscience so that you can't even be convicted by the Holy Spirit and get led to the right path. It will corrupt our character. It will promote self-righteousness and hypocrisy in our life. We'll go around judging everything, man. The music was too loud. Oh, that guy, look how he drives. Oh, the imagine. Self-righteous little guy. Judging everything. Pure and undefiled religion realizes, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And when you see another sinner, you go, oh man, I have compassion on you. I don't struggle with heroin, but I tell you what, I struggle with this, this, and this, and this. And man, I know, I mean, it just, this, it's hard. And man, oh, I want you to know, I can point you to a savior. He's amazing. He's a great physician. He will heal you. He'll bring you on the right path. And it changes the way we look at things. Uh, vain religion, we become blind to our own sin and more judgmental of others. And slowly our discernment begins to erode with dry rot or begins to get moth-eaten, bigger and bigger and bigger holes, ruined, uh, just decaying away. Lisa and I love to walk on the beach at sunset 
And uh, here in North County, as you know, when you walk on the beach, there's all these homes on the cliffs, right? And these homes on the cliff, they all have one common problem. Erosion. (laughs) When did it happen? I don't know. But it's slowly eating away your millionaire paradise. And some of them, it's bad, man. You see like the patio and the patio, instead of the ground, the patio is now like hanging over like there's nothing here, right? You're like, don't stand on that patio, dude. Uh, And here that God says, that's what this vain religion is. It's like a moth. It's like erosion. It's like dry rot in the wood. And you don't even know it's happening. I want you to know, nationally, we can see it. Do you see it in America? Oh, I thought about this this week as I was thinking on, meditating on this passage. You think back to the 70s, the 60s and the 70s, and it was all about free love, man. Just, uh, just It led to rampant sexuality, rampant uh, immorality. Can I tell you something? <clears throat> that may sound good. You know, just sleep around, enjoy it. Sin is pleasurable for a season. What did it produce? Oh, it produced death. It was a mess. Can I tell you something? There is no such thing as free love. Love is expensive. I've raised four kids. It's expensive. (laughs) I just had a daughter's wedding. It's expensive. You know why? Because love does whatever the other one needs, regardless of what it costs you. And that is a meaningful relationship. And that is the relationship that God says sex has the only place in. One man, one woman, joined together for life. And that sex will be a powerful bond between you. It'll bring intimacy to you. It'll be unique in all your relationships that are on the earth. It'll bring unity and a bond that will strengthen you. It's my gift to you as a married couple. But man, you take that outside of the context and it will bring death and destruction. In the 60s and 70s, we were all about that. Man, it brought all kinds of heartache and pain. You know what it brought? It brought a vast, uh, just it necessitated just vast drug use. And we turned to alcohol and drugs because we were, had broken souls. We were sleeping with everyone and, and it didn't work and our lives were bankrupt and we had to get drunk and high to cover that pain. And alcoholism and drug use shot up as a result of this sexual promiscuity. That was the 60s and 70s. Then in the 80s, it brought open homosexuality. And we said, well, hey, you know, uh, we're, we're free to do what we want to do. Okay, good luck with that. And then we went into the 2000s and we brought in gay marriage. Well, as long as we love each other, who are you to say? I'll say marriage isn't our idea. Marriage isn't our design. It was defined in the Bible by God. God instituted it. It is God's organization. It starts in the book of Genesis. One man, one woman coming together as one flesh for life. And God gives you freedom. You don't have to obey him. You can go down the path of destruction, but you cannot redefine marriage. 
And if you want to live together, you want to sleep together, you want to do whatever you do, God gives you that freedom. I'm all for that freedom. I'm not against two homosexuals being together. Uh, no problem. I'm a sexual deviant. You're a sexual deviant. We're all sexual deviants. The difference is we bring our sexual deviancies under the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's not one righteous. No, not one. Don't think I'm sitting here picking on the homosexual community. I just picked on the 60s and the 70s, so give me a break, right? Uh, I'm, against, I'm against calling sin righteousness. That's all I'm talking about. And so we did that in the 2000s. And you know what it ushered in? It ushered in in 2015 transgenderism. And it ushered in non-binary. Why? Because sin has an insatiable appetite. It will never be satisfied. A cancer doesn't stop on just one cell. What does it do? It spreads until it destroys the whole body. It's a picture of sin. And so we have now this transgender, non-binary nonsense. And now I learn there are 81 different um, what are they called? Uh, genders, thank you. 81 different genders. 81. 81. Like anyone knows. Uh, I read through some of them. They're insane. And you know what it is? It is mass confusion. And God is not the author of confusion. And now we have, that, that was 2015, and now in 2020, uh, the erosion and the moth-eaten nation continues. Now in 2020, we have the mutilation of children and pedophilia running rampant. Because cancer never stops, and the moth never quits eating, and the dry rot never quits, and the erosion continues. And it's only a matter of time before the house on the hill falls. May we be wise. Now we have drag queens being championed at elementary schools. What are the drag queens so infatuated with our children for? Why is that even an issue? And if you think I'm picking on a certain people, you could not be more wrong. You're not even listening. So go ahead and write me off and don't deal with your sin, but you're not even listening. I'm talking about the moral decay of a nation. I'm teaching Hosea 5 and 6. <laughs> I have a question, church family. Where was the church in all of this? Where was the church? Where were the Christians? How did this happen? Oh, here's what happens. It was vain religion. And instead of speaking against things, and instead of being a city on a hill that cannot be hid, instead of being the salt of the earth that, uh, that brings flavor and preservative to the world, instead, we just had our little sermonettes with our little inspirational 15-minute messages. And they disappear as quick as you get to your parking lot. We're building nothing. And the church put up with all this. You know why? 
because the lordship of Jesus Christ was absent. Let me tell you something. I really don't care what you think about human sexuality. I really don't care what you think about alcoholism, what you think about uh, same-sex marriage. I really don't care. I care about what God's word says. There is a way that seems right unto a man, and in the end it brings death. Jesus said, I have come to give you life and life abundant. And so it doesn't matter what society thinks. What matters is, is what God thinks and what God's word says. Our wisdom and discernment are moth-eaten, just like Israel of 700 B.C. And the church, the American church today, is like rotten wood, just like Israel 700 B.C. And the church today lacks discernment regarding good and evil. It has no spine to stand against evil. And popular opinion is what sways the American church. And you know what my fear is? And we'll look at this next week. As we move forward in this war against Hamas, what Israel does, we, Israel has to do hard things. And the moment those hard things start happening, you know what everybody's going to do? Whoa! No! And we won't stand with Israel. We won't stand with what's right. And we will capitulate. And we'll go with the sway of public opinion. If you saw the Black Lives Matter uh, Instagram post this week, it was downright repulsive. They show a guy on a parachute. You all saw what happened at the, at the music festival. These Hamas terrorists came in with automatic weapons on multiple parachutes and just shot, like imagine just shooting into the crowd, hundreds and hundreds of people. And BLM, Black Lives Matter, has the audacity to show a silhouette of a parachute, why am I saying these things, of a parachuter with a Palestinian flag saying, I stand with, with Palestine. You're saying, I stand with slaughtering innocent civilians at a music festival wholesale as a mass murder. You stand for that, do you? But here's what happens, and I need to get back to our text. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) If the church will not stand for truth, We will lack discernment and we will fall into, uh, we're like rotten wood, right? Uh, And that's what's happened. The church has no spine today. Um, May I remind you, Jesus said there are only, how many paths? There's only two paths. And here's what Jesus said. He said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 7, 13. Let's hear you read a big unified voice. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few that find it. Uh, Satan doesn't care how he gets you. It could be through one ideology or another. It doesn't really matter. You can think that knowing God is staring at your navel and going, hum, broad is the way that leads to destruction. He doesn't care which path you take. 
If you're a parent, you know this. If you love your kids, you care which path they take. And there is one path that you want them to, work, to, to walk in. They have a lot of uh, uh, freedoms on that path to make their own decisions about things and do different things, but it's on one path. And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. You have to realize that you're a sinner, that you're wayward, that your way doesn't work, and you have to realize that God's word is the right path and turn to it, and I will forgive you, I will heal you, I will cleanse you, I will save you, I will lead, guide, and direct you into all truth, and you'll have abundant life. But there are only two paths. And the church cannot compromise with the evil of the world. And that's what Israel had did. They were worshiping all the things of the flesh and they were still thinking they believed in God. And, and God says, hey, you are like, you're like uh, you know, uh, rotten wood, like worm-eaten cloth. Uh, church, I want you to know, we must not let society shape our views and our values. Instead, we must shape society's views and values. That is the very purpose of the church. And the reason that Jesus was hard on the religious leaders is because they weren't doing their job. And the whole nation dies as a result. The reason that God is speaking to the priests so, so strongly here is because they're not doing their job. And listen, we are the church. This we here is the church. And we must not let society shape our views and values. I wonder, how's that going for you? Is society shaping your views and values or is God's word shaping your views and values? And what is happening is God is moving history forward to make that defining line clearer and clearer and clearer. Who's walking in my ways and who's not? Uh... <clears throat> The only way we can shape society is by making Jesus the Lord of our lives, the authority of our lives. I want you to know the sway of the world is too powerful for tepid Christianity. But if we are in awe of God's love for us, if we are in awe of the gospel, if we are in awe of Jesus, we will stand and we will stand firm. And you know what will happen? You will be wise. You will not be a moth-eaten garment and a rotted dry wood. You will have wisdom and foundation and discernment. And you'll be able to see through all the, the counterfeit loves of the world and all the counterfeit ideologies of the world and all the counterfeit wisdom of the world. And you will build your life on the word of God and the word of God remains forever. It is unshakable. The Bible says in the last days, God will shake all that can be shaken. So only that which cannot be shaken will remain. That's a Bible verse. And guess what we're seeing today? And you know what I'm so thankful? I'm so thankful for God's word. Because when all the shaking happens, I'm on solid ground. Not because I'm great but because God's word is great, right? And we just walk in it. Um, crying out loud, I am killing myself. Uh, Time-wise, I mean. Uh, uh, what a rabbit trail, crying out loud. Um, 
Verse 13, uh, what will Israel do when they hear this, right? Uh, uh, when they hear that they're, they're like rottenness, when they hear that they're like a, a moth-eaten garment, what will Israel do? Verse 13, when Ephraim, that's what, who's Ephraim? The northern kingdom. When the northern kingdom saw his sickness and Judah, the southern kingdom, when they saw their wound, here's what happened. Ephraim went to God. No. Ephraim went where? To Assyria. Guess what they went to Assyria for? For help. And he sent to King Jerib. And he says, and God says, he can't cure you. He can't heal your wound. Uh, just crazy. Uh, crazy. Uh, do you know what happened here? At the, at the time where Hosea is being written, King Menahem was the king of the northern kingdom. And uh, Israel was just bombarded in, in vain religion. And King Menahem, he was a wicked king. Guess how he got into power? He killed the previous king, uh, King Shalom. Uh, he killed him, uh, King Shalom, and he took his, his throne. Uh, king Shalom got what was coming to him, because guess how King Shalom got into power? He killed Hezekiah, the king before him. So uh, uh, this was the wickedness, this was the rottenness of the nation at that time. So now King, uh, King Maham is in power and the, the, the nation's crumbling. And so guess where King uh, uh, Menahem goes? He goes to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria comes in and he says, I'm going to charge you tribute. You're going to be a vassal king to me. And he charges the king of, a, uh, the king of Israel, the king Menahem, uh, charges him 37 tons of silver to give him protection. 37 tons of silver to protect him as a weak nation right now. Instead of going to God, he goes to the king of Assyria and he pays 37 tons of silver. Guess where he got all that money? From? He taxed the rich. Sound familiar? Instead of going to God, he goes to the king of Assyria. And God says, he can't help you. What in the heck are you doing? Uh, you can read all about that in, in 2 Kings chapter 5, by the way. Uh, verse 14. Uh, he cannot cure you, nor can he heal your wound. Verse 14. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. I'll be like a lion to the northern kingdom. Have you ever seen a lion? When they go and they get their prey, what do they do? They, they kill it, and what do they do with it? They take it back to their lair. They drag it off. He says, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be taken into captivity. You're going to be taken away. And I'm going to be like a young lion to the house of Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity in 722 B.C. Uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, didn't go taken into Babylonian captivity until 586 B.C., over 100 years later. Uh, the lion wasn't it was just a young lion, but it grew up and it led the southern kingdom into captivity also. Uh, look, what, look what God says, uh, second half of 14. I, even I, will tear them and go away. He's, talk, he's using the, young lion, the, the lion analogy. I will take them away and no one shall rescue. Wow. What do you do with that, man? What do you do with that? Um... Tough to see, tough to read. Uh, I want you to know something. 
Take a look at King Menahem and what he was trying to do. The nation is crumbling. Is King Menahem caring about the nation? No. He goes and gets another king and makes an alliance with him. Why? What's he trying to protect? His own power and his own influence. Uh, messed up. As I mentioned earlier, you all have power. You all have influence. And it is used to build others, not yourself. And sinful leadership always wants to build itself. Uh, how do you regulate this? How do you check yourself on this? Well, I tell you, it is really wise to regularly examine our motives. Do it all the time. Do it daily. Hey, why did I act that way in this meeting? Hey, why did I talk that way to my spouse? Hey, why did I speak that way to my kids? What was I trying to build? What I want? Or was I trying to build them? It is wise to regularly examine our motives. Not just our actions, but our motives. Do you know what that's called, by the way? Examining our motives? Do you know what that's called? You're going to be blown away at the word. Uh, I'm going to ask you one more time. Give me some words. What is that called? It's called prayer. <laughs> prayer is not telling God what to do. God, I need you to heal this person. I need you to do this. Hey, now there's a time for intercessory prayer. Don't get me wrong. But real prayer, your relationship with God, is looking at your motives. It's looking at your life and saying, Lord, I got this issue. And I started acting this way. Lord, what does your word say? How do you want me to... Lord, you want me to do this. Lord, now tomorrow, when I go and I deal with this meeting, when I go with this, help me to walk this way. It's called prayer. And it is really wise to examine our motives and to meditate on God's word and to bring the two together so that we can be in harmony with God. Um, I'm supposed to stop in just like a couple minutes here. Uh, verse 15. I want to get into chapter 6 a little bit. Verse, verse 15. Just a little bit. Uh, I will tear them away. I will go away. I will take them away. No one shall rescue. And look at this. I will return, God speaking, to my place until they acknowledge their offense. That's all God wants. Until they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face in captivity. Uh, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Uh, this is God's hope. Chapter 6 is going to reveal what God's hope is. God doesn't want to bring judgment. Oh, how I want to save you, oh, harlot bride. I'm trying over and over and over. But if you refuse, I will allow you to go into your captivity. And I will wait for you to acknowledge your sin. Um, after verse 15, after where it says, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me, write the word saying, saying. In the Septuagint, the word saying is there. Uh, and it really brings in chapter 6. There's no chapter division in the original letter uh, of Hosea. Uh, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me, saying, come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. 
on the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know God, by the way. Let us know God. Let us pursue the knowledge of Yahweh. His going forth is established as the morning. In other words, his going forth is trustworthy. It is dependable. You can bank on it. He will come to us like the latter rain, like the latter and the former rain on the earth, like the early and latter rains. He will come to us. What does that mean? It means he will come to us with all the nourishment that we need to make our crops grow, to make us flourish, to make us blossom. He is faithful. You can bank on it. His, his, his ways are as established as the morning. Uh, every morning you wake up and guess what? That sun is already rising. God is faithful. And God says, you think that sun is faithful? I'm the one who put that sun in the sky. I am way more faithful than the sun. Uh, Here we see what God is looking for, what God is asking for. Genuine repentance is the response that God wants from us. That's all he's looking for. Genuine repentance is the antidote to vain religion. Genuine repentance. Oh, Lord, man, I want to walk in your ways. I want to turn to you. My ways don't work. Lord, I want you. No one loves me like you do. No one has done what you have done. Lord, you're amazing. I want to know you. Genuine repentance is the only response the Lord is looking for in our lives. I want you to know God is not hard to please. He's not asking for anything difficult. He's just asking us to be honest about our sin and to walk in his path. Jesus would say, take on my ways and learn of me. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm not going to ask you to climb the mountains of Tibet on your knees in the snow and put shards of cut glass down so you can get enlightenment. I'm not going to ask you to swim to the depths of the ocean where you can find meaning in life. No, no, no. Just come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take on my ways and learn of me, and I will show you the right path. I will give you wisdom to speak to a wayward son. I will give you profound discernment for complex problems. I will show you the path when it appears there's no way out. I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will lead, guide, and direct you to all truth. What a God. What a husband. What a Savior. And this is his plan for us. And so may we be encouraged in these turbulent times. Uh, what he is looking for is our heart. Uh, uh, look at, uh, let's do a couple more verses and we'll wrap up on verse 6. Um, o Ephraim, what shall I do to you? That's the northern kingdom. O Judah, the southern kingdom, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. What's a morning cloud? You get up at 6 in the morning, there's that little puffy cloud, and then by 7.30, it's gone. Contrast that to what he just said about his faithfulness. My faithfulness is like the sun rising every day. Your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. Vanishes away. 
What shall I do to you? Your faithfulness is like the morning cloud and like the early dew that goes away. It's just here for a moment and then it's gone. You're sincere on Sunday and you forget all about me on Monday. Uh, Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. Interesting word, hewn. Hewn means to sculpt and to shape and to... to, uh, And he says, I've hewn them with my word from the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. I've, I've, I've told them they were on the wrong path. I've rebuked them. I then gave them my judgments, the right path. And I said, hey, walk in this. It's been like a bright light that would illuminate their path in the darkness. Uh, this is what I'm asking for. Walk in it. And look at verse 6. I want to end on verse 6. For I desire, read this with me. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. What in the world does that mean? Jesus quoted this passage right here in Hosea often, multiple times. What does it mean? Jesus would say it this way. He would say, go and learn what this means. Go and learn what Hosea was talking about. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What in the world does that mean? Well, in the Gospels, we get examples of when Jesus used it, and it helps us understand, the example helps us understand what the passage actually means. Uh, It simply means, I desire godly character and not vain religion. I desire mercy Godly character, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, vain religious activity. When did Jesus use that expression? Well, multiple times. One time was when he called a wretched sinner by the name of Matthew to follow him. Matthew was a Jew who had given up on Judaism. And he had become a Roman tax collector. And therefore, all the Jews hated him. And Jesus comes along and says, you are mine. Follow me. You are on the wrong path. Come back home. Follow me. And so Matthew does. And that night, Matthew throws a giant party in his house. Because Matthew's got money. He's a tax collector. He throws a giant party. And guess who he invites? All his sinful tax collectors. And they're all sinners. And so they're drinking, they're partying, who knows what they're doing, and, and, and they're eating dinner, and the religious leaders come and see Jesus, and they go, what are you doing hanging out with all these sinners? And you remember what Jesus said? Those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick, they need a physician. I am the great physician. I'm here to heal the sick. Now, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What is he telling them? You have forgotten your purpose. You go around judging everything, condemning everything, and you know what? You have rotten character. Go and learn what this means. It's character in your life that I want, not religious observance. It's godliness in your life. It's the knowledge of God and not vain religion. 
This is God's calling on us. May we be wise. Read verse 6 out loud one more time. Take it to heart. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I'm not asking for anything else but for you to know me, to walk with me, and to let me change your character so that you are conformed into the image and to the person of Jesus and your life looks like his. What a great God. What a great Savior. What a great ministry. What a great mission that you and I are on. And it's time to live it. Amen? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.